0: Listen to and follow Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts.
1: You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum Card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing. Because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com Terms with Amex. Terms apply. Switched
0: on Pop. Welcome to Switched On Pop. I'm songwriter Charlie Harding.
2: And I'm musicologist Nate Sloan.
0: I don't know about you, Nate, but I feel like we've had a relentless beat of major releases and tributes so far in just the beginning of this year. And I am finding it hard to keep up.
2: It is an embarrassment of riches, truly.
0: I feel like I, I do best if I take time to let things sink in a little bit. Oh, yeah. You're like a sponge, a sexy sponge. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> So, for the past two weeks, I've been really thoroughly absorbing Beyonce's Lemonade, which we'll talk about in the first half of the show. And
2: I have been steeping myself in Prince's seemingly infinite back catalog, which we will be listening to in the second half of the episode with the help of someone who literally wrote their dissertation on funk, scholar and writer Matthew
0: Valness. Beautiful. All right. Well, let's just kick things off. I am so excited to get into Beyoncé's new album, Lemonade. Yes. It's one of those albums where I just wish that we lived in the same city because I would want to sit down and listen to this thing track by track and dissect every piece of it with you. Uh, A classic Nate Charlie listening session. Yes. Alas. Getting into this album feels like an almost impossible task because it contains so many multitudes, mm. right? Just to name a few, at the surface, there is a personal narrative about marital infidelity and rediscovering love. Check. You
3: can taste the dishonesty, it's all over your breath. As you pass it off so cavalier, but even that's a test, constantly aware of it all.
0: There is incredible commentary on the multi-generational trauma of American race relationships in the modern black experience. Check.
1: Yeah. Open correctional gates in high desert. Yeah. Open our mind as we cast away oppression. Yeah. Open the streets and watch our beliefs, and when they call my name inside the concrete, I pray it for every... freedom, freedom.
0: It has a strong feminist narrative about self-determination and communal healing. Check.
3: Okay, ladies, now let's get information. I slap. Okay, ladies, now let's get information. I slap. Who to me, you got some coordination. I slap. Slay, slay, you get eliminated.
0: Right, this is some deep stuff. And on top of its many narratives, it's also a work of multitudes it's in many mediums right it's cinema it's poetry it's dance and of course it's also music
2: i completely agree with everything you said except i have to point out that the plural of medium is in fact media (laughs) i'm I'm such a jerk i'm so sorry charlie i appreciate that (laughs) but To your larger point, yes, 100%. This album is like galaxies wrapped in universes of sound. It's huge.
0: There's so much there. And part of it is that there is a multitude of producers, collaborators, co-writers, unbelievable amounts of samples. And musically, it moves across R&B, hip hop, rock and even goes into the world of country
2: country (laughs) yeah (laughs) who would have guessed
0: well that there is so much here and that we cannot bore people with a multiple hour-long episode of switched on pop i think what Mm -hmm. we should do is instead look at just one song and see how it represents this body of work which contains multitudes and it is so hard to pick just one song but i think the best candidate for us today is going to be hold up strong choice charlie hold up. they
3: don't love you like i love you slow down they don't love you like i love you back up they don't love you like i love you step down they don't love you like i love you can't you see there's no other man above you? What a wicked way to treat the girl that loves you. Oh, love. They don't love you like I love you. Oh, don't. They don't love you like I love
2: you. So, Charlie, why hold up? Why is this a paradigmatic track from this record for you?
0: I'm not sure I understood what you just said, but I'm going to infer. (laughs) Um, uh, Well, so okay, hold up is the second track on the album, and I think that it's an essential piece because it introduces some of the main themes. Uh, We talked about the sort of surface narrative of the album about infidelity, and you know, Beyonce sings, "Hold up, they don't love you like I love you." Like, yo, dude, what's going on? (laughs) Why are you cheating on me? Those other ladies, they don't love you. Yeah. I love
2: you. It's a heartbreaking hook.
0: It's a heartbreaking hook. Part of the reason why I want to talk about this song, though, isn't because of its surface narrative about relationship, but instead, I want to go into how there is more than a single narrative here, that in fact, we're getting multiple points of view aided by a long list of contributors and some really unique sonic musical elements.
2: So I totally agree, but if the song can't have a single narrative necessarily, like what. Are the the themes? What holds this song together? How does it cohere?
0: The main theme that I'm hearing here is composed frustration and also emotional restraint. Mm. I guess that's kind of two sides of the same coin. <laughs> I like it, that though, and and it's coming across both musically and narratively. What we're getting is this song where we expect an outburst of anger, right? It's about cheating, okay. um, and right in the music video. Beyonce's walking down the street, smashing in car windows. Indeed. But what we're actually getting is this very interior song, a song about self examination, about looking at multiple points of view, about feeling jealous and crazy at the same time. Mm. So, what I want to do here is see how she builds up this unique point of view with the music and with the assistance of a bunch of collaborators. Excellent. Oh, love,
3: they don't love you like I love you. Slow down. They don't love you like I love you back up they don't love you like i love you step down they don't love you like i love
0: you so my first question for you is what kind of song is this like what traditions is it pulling from what oh, are you hearing
2: man yeah i mean from the start i hear something sort of distant and far away and like maybe even a little cheesy Ooh, okay kind of this like
0: <laughs> like kind of cheap tropical synthesized sound
2: (laughs) heard from a from a distance
0: perhaps yeah exactly one of the producers on the song is diplo and he's Uh, known for borrowing heavily from calypso and dance hall style beats indeed Right, so that's the first obvious thing that we're hearing. We're also very quickly hearing a cover, right?
2: Yeah, I feel like this is actually a song we've talked about on this podcast
0: before. We did. We spoke about Maps by the Yeah Yeah Yeahs on our Max Martin episode because... He borrowed that track to create a Kelly Clarkson song. Since You've Been Gone. Since You've Been Gone. Yeah. Exactly.
2: Whoa, man, this, this Yeah 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 song is like the gift that keeps on giving for pop producers.
0: It does. If we go back and listen to Maps, it's also a breakup song. Oh, yeah, so it is. But Maps takes the breakup song in a really different direction. It sets up the expectation of some sort of giant moment of emotional release. Right. There's this big break in the middle of the song where guitars wail and, uh, you know, this heightened moment of energy. Yes. Okay, so I asked you, what is this song? And we we hear a, a dance hall style thing. We hear a major rock song. But something feels really wrong to me if those are the two major references.
2: Right, the drums and and guitars and the wall of sound never actually unleashes. It all remains very
0: tight and tense. Yeah, basically like the beat never drops. No. Yeah, there's like this one four-bar section. We're getting this build-up and we think, oh, it's the whole thing's going to drop right here. And it never does. No, it is such a fake-out. So, just as Beyonce is building up the expectation that she is lyrically going to let loose, she says that she'd rather be crazy and the whole thing's going to blow up. Musically, we're getting the same thing. I think that Diplo and the AIS yeah, yeah, cover is setting up the expectation that this is going to be a really big, explosive song. Instead, just as Beyonce is about to go crazy when she says, I
3: like being walked all over lately, walked all over lately. I'd rather be crazy. Hold up. They don't love you
0: like I love you. Hold up. She's sort of saying, oh, wait, wait, back up. Back up.
3: They don't love you like I love you. Slow
0: down. Let's reconsider. Oh, yeah. And then the the music itself kind of tightens up. It all pulls back.
2: Exactly. Oh, wow.
0: Okay. I'm with you. And I think musically, we are getting this influence from two of her other collaborators on the piece. Uh, and and which of the 300 collaborators would would those be? There's a lot. Um, So I think we're getting a little bit from uh, Father John Misty, who is a folk songwriter. And I especially think we're hearing a lot of influence from Ezra Koenig, who is the uh, main songwriter from Vampire Weekend.
2: Yeah. And at this point, it's probably worth pausing for a moment to just say, again, Father John Misty and Vampire Weekend are on this Beyonce record.
0: What? Multitudes, I'm telling you. Yeah. So Ezra Koenig back in 2011 actually came up with the idea for this song. It actually came out in a tweet. Huh. Um, he, he was like, what if, what, what if we you know reconfigured the maps? Yeah. 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 Song. Instead of
2: saying, wait, they don't love you. Like I love you. Hold up. They don't love you. Like I love you. Exactly. Ah.
0: And he had worked on a demo for the piece and it probably should have ended up on the 2013 album, Modern Vampires of the City, which was extraordinary because it has a lot in common with that album, especially the opening track, Obvious Bicycle. Oh. I want to take a listen to that really quickly. Yeah, spin that.
3: Morning's come,
2: you watch the red sunrise. The LED still flickers in your eyes. All oh, you are to spare, face the razor. Because no
3: one's
0: gonna spend time for you. So, Obvious Bicycle is basically a track about uh, the morning after a giant rave. Huh. And, and this song has that sort of same musical restraint that we're hearing in Beyonce. It, it has almost this quality of like you've stood in front of the speakers at a rave for way too long, <laughs> and the next morning, all you can hear is like. <laughs> Oh, Charlie, that's good. There are all these elements of sort of hints of um, of dance music. You can hear this like buzziness in the background, but it's almost like a memory of the night before. So
3: listen, uh-
0: in And Beyonce, we're hearing a lot of the same sort of thing. There are all of these allusions to uh, dance music. We hear this crazy siren. We hear sort of these drum buildups, right? We even hear these these, like calling voices in the background of the track. But it never comes into the foreground. It almost feels like it's, it's interior. It's inside of her head. Whoa, it's it's the the rave inside. The internal rave. The rave or the rage inside. Yeah. Ooh. So we have all of these collaborators bringing these different points of view into this piece which wants to let loose and yet is always holding back. And I want to look at specifically musically what's going on here to reinforce that same feeling what you called earlier, I love this phrase, composed frustration. Exactly. I think it it begins with just the the very first thing that we hear, these plucking pizzicato strings.
2: Yeah, there's two ways to play a stringed instrument, right? At least two, I should say. One is to bow the strings. That's probably the majority. Uh, That is called arco. Arco. But the other is to actually pluck the strings with your fingers. And that is called pizzicato, which in addition to being a really fun word to say, is, like you said, a very distinct musical texture that's much more controlled and quiet and uh, intense than the, the alternative.
0: Yeah, they have a sense of of actually being restrained rather than being let loose and singing wildly with a bow they have a more muted quality to them. Yeah, indeed. I think it's mirrored uh, most clearly in Beyoncé's vocal. I think it's in the second verse.
3: Let's imagine for a moment that you never made a name for yourself a master. wealth. they had you labeled as a king. Never made it out the case, The light they're moving in them streets. Never had the baddest woman in the game. Up in your shade.
0: When you listen to it, it's really clear that she's close mic'd. She's speaking super quietly. It almost sounds like She's just woken up from a nap. You can hear all of the rasp in her voice. Oh yeah, you can I love this
2: part. You can hear like every every grain and every like fiber of her vocal
0: cords, totally. So we have this inquisitive line in the background, we have this interior vocal. And I I want to go into how are they interacting. So if we look at the chords that the pizzicato strings are playing, they sort of go up this line then they descend right back down the exact same progression and so we're going up and then we're going back down we're going back up and then down just as in the song we're raising the the expectations hey you're cheating on me what's up hold up what's going on and then sort of going back down to the progression
2: ah yeah and classical we would call that antecedent and consequent
0: You've always got so many good things for
2: us. (laughs) You're welcome.
0: If that's what's going on with instrumentally, if you look at Beyonce's melody, I think we're getting the same quality. When she starts to sing the chorus, it starts on this, this high note, right? Yeah. She starts way up high, descends down a little bit. Sort of building up this expectation. And then right in the middle of her phrase... She makes this crazy leap in her vocal. We know that as the tritone.
2: Ah, the infamous tritone.
0: The devil in musica.
2: Yeah, diabolus in musica.
0: That's it. I don't remember my music theory as well as you do.
2: Well, I get paid too, so don't worry. It's not It's not a lot.
0: <laughs> so what does this all mean? Why is this important? So, I, so what I'm hearing is that, like, that tension of the angst of marital strife that she's experiencing starts in this high melody. You you experience her internal frustration with this bizarre interval where right in the middle of her melody, she, she gives us the most dissonant musical interval. You can hear the craze that she speaks about. And then rather than bursting up into a higher octave, lets loose, and walks all the way back down the scale. Ooh, yeah,
2: yeah, I totally hear that in that melody. It's like a crooked path. It's like trying to find itself as it slowly descends to the tonic.
0: Just as the chords kind of sound like they're trying to find themselves. Yeah,
2: yeah, okay, I'm with you. Going up and down, the sedent thing. What was the sedent thing? The antecedent and consequent.
0: That, that's the one.
2: <laughs> also the lamest rap duo ever. <laughs> <laughs> so the song... Like, I totally agree. The song constantly seems to be building up tension and then rather than exercising it with some cathartic release, kind of says, nope, hold up, bring it back in. Everything's going to be okay." And yeah, this is this is a really interesting exercise. And it does leave you as a listener, I wonder, feeling a little like, okay, but I need that release. And I mean, what is is, are they making a mistake not ever giving it on this song?
0: Absolutely not, because as I was saying in the beginning, this album is a work of multitudes. There are so many themes and there is so much happening musically. And rather than giving us a resolution in this track, Beyonce keeps us waiting for the next track.
2: Oh, so you're seeing the whole album is almost uh, what in the Romantic era they would call a song cycle where each song is its own musical universe, but then the way they relate to the other songs actually tells a bigger story.
0: Absolutely. Here she's leaving us hanging and keeping us on the line so that we listen to the next piece, Don't Hurt Yourself, the major Jack White-produced riff rock anthem with Led Zeppelin <laughs> samples where she totally lets loose.
2: Whoa, Charlie, I need that. I need that release. Give me a little taste. Uh, wait a-
0: That's all you get because (laughs) (laughs) it's so good. If you want to listen to the whole thing, you're going to have to listen more deeply to this entire work because, as I was saying, this album has so much on it. There's so much to experience. Um, So I just implore everybody to go listen to Lemonade all the way through multiple times. But don't go check it
2: out just yet because when we come back after a short break, we will be celebrating the music of Prince and examining the way he fused R&B, funk, and rock to create one of the century's most unique artistic statements.
0: This is exciting. Support for Special on Pop comes from Vibe Check. If you were an Intuit fan and you are missing Sam Sanders, then have no fear. He's back with another great pod called Vibe Check. Each week, Sam and his two best friends, writer Saeed Jones and journalist and producer Zach Stafford, make sense of what's going on in the news and culture. From... Elon Musk and Foreign Policy to How to Heal from a Breakup to Usher's Super Bowl halftime show, they check the vibe of what's going on in the world and how it all feels. They're currently doing a series called Hey Sis, where they're highlighting the compelling stories of Black women and their achievements. They're being joined by special guests Regina King, Audie Cornish, Raquel Willis, and more. VibeCheck check is your favorite group chat come to life you can join the weekly kiki every wednesday listen to and follow vibe check wherever you get your podcasts can't believe sam made me say kiki
1: when you're an american express platinum card member don't be surprised if you say things like chef what course are we on um, i've lost count
0: or shoot that shoot that
1: In order to
2: dig deeper into the musical world of Prince, I have connected with Matthew Valness, a scholar and writer whose piece on Prince that recently appeared in the Musicology blog is one of the best things uh, I've read about the late musician recently. Matthew is on the line. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh,
4: it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
2: So I appreciate you joining us on this voyage. And I, and as a, a fellow musicology PhD holder, I think we have a, a special connection to Prince. Ooh,
3: musicology. All right.
2: Hold it down, band.
4: Right. Yeah, he did. Uh, he wrote a song just for uh, that, uh, you know, stressed our discipline, which is uh,
2: is always nice to nice to come across in, in popular music. Exactly, though. I do wish my Ph.D. was in advanced body movement. Well, don't we all I assume that, uh, you know, only <laughs> Prince is the one who can have one of those.
3: We got a PhD in advanced, movement. That's right.
2: Um, so, Matthew, in your piece, uh, you talk about growing up in Fargo, North Dakota and listening to the Prince song, How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore? And I was wondering if you could just talk about your reaction to hearing that song for the first time.
4: Sure, yeah, The you know, I actually came to Prince's music um, sort of embarrassingly late, given the fact that I, you know, grew up across the river from his home state. Right. Um, I was listening to this album by this jazz saxophonist, Joshua Redman. I believe it was Timeless Tales for Changing Times. And the the last uh, track on that on that record is a is a cover of How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore, and I loved it. You know, I loved Brad Mehldau solo, loved Joshua Redman solo on it. So I thought, all right, I gotta track this. I gotta track the original down and see what's going on. Uh, you know, and found out it was a Prince tune. Pop, you know, popped it in, um, had heard those first two chord, those first two piano chords. You know, that D flat going down to that. Um, E flat half diminished with the A in the bass and you know like I read in the blog like I was fucked that was sort of an unbelievable musical moment for me
2: What do you think it was about those two chords that sparked something in the young Matthew Volniss growing up in Fargo, North Dakota?
4: Well, I think, um, you know, just sort of his so the musicianship that he displays, you know, he's not just playing block chords on the piano. It's this, you know, really sort of pianistic uh, sort of transition between between these two chords. Um, and in addition, you know, when you get that, um, for for me, really, it was that, that A natural on the bass, you know, it's not a chord that you find in a, in a D-flat major, or it's not a note that you find in a D-flat major chord.
1: I I so, right those so
4: the sort of mode mixture, you know, the sort of introducing um, unexpected notes really sort of piqued my my interest and, and caught my ear. And so I, you know, heard that uh, heard that chord and just needed to needed to hear more of Prince and his work after that.
2: Well, I love that you came to Prince via jazz, right? Because as we'll talk about later, there is uh, Prince, maybe more more than most pop artists, seems to have a lot of uh, sort of crossover appeal with the jazz world. And maybe it also comes back to one of the the most compelling points for me in your piece where uh, you talk about that in in the aftermath of Prince's death, many commentators have been saying that he is known for breaking down musical barriers. And in your piece, you're, you're kind of like, yeah, maybe, but you could also say that what he was doing was actually kind of exposing the fact that sonic experimentation has a long history in black music and doesn't always fit so neatly into generic boundaries. Yeah, that's absolutely correct that, you know, Prince is, is just uh,
4: steeped in, in black music history. He was this incredible musician, this incredible improviser, incorporating all these different sounds and combining them with with funk grooves. He was really engaging with, um, you know, sort of new sound technologies that um, that were around him at the time and that that were being developed and really just sort of honing it into into this idea of, of,
2: as you say, experimentation and improvisation and sonic architecture beautiful okay so improvisation experimentation i, I don't know if we could find uh, all these things in a single song but a good place to start could be what might be prince's most popular song uh when doves cry mm-hmm. off the 1984 album purple rain and which i just checked is actually currently number 20 on the pop charts at the moment beautiful and i think if we listen to this we will see some of those Attributes that you just mm-hmm. described, starting yeah. maybe from the be- very beginning of this song, right. which starts with this just ripping guitar solo. <laughs>
4: I mean, what can you say about that moment? I mean, it's, you know, sort of a perfect example of Prince's guitar chops. Um, what I find really interesting about, um, about that moment in particular is, you know, um, so, like, he's clearly this amazing guitar player. Right. And then the guitar sort of disappears for a while. And the song oh, becomes yeah. this, this really sparse, almost austere funk track. You know, it's basically just Prince and his, his vocals, his multi track vocals, this two-measure drum groove. Um, With some synthesizer parts dropped in here and there. Um, So it really sort of sets you up for this, uh, you know, sort of explosive (laughs) rock piece. And then you get this like really bare bones funk tune. And I think it's a really, really nice moment.
2: Yeah, that's true. Explosive guitar that immediately vanishes. And for a long time in this song, we're just left with, as you say, Prince's vocals and this this drum loop. Right. At this moment, as you said, it's very sparse. And then something you you point out in the article that uh, is... Actually, to be honest, not a feature of the song that I ever recognized until you mentioned it is. I feel like we're kind of waiting for a certain instrument to arrive, right? A certain guest to come to this musical party. Yeah,
4: I mean, throughout the throughout the tune, there's no baseline. I mean, here you have this funk tune that like doesn't have the instrument that came to symbolize the genre in the 1970s. You know. We have to keep in mind that you know we're not so far removed from the 70s in 1984 and you've, you know we've got uh the sly and the family stone track thank you for letting me be myself again which introduced this or if not introduced but popularized this whole new way of playing bass and it became like the focal point of that of that tune So we've got that introducing the 1970s right we take a trip seven years later and bernie warrell and p funk you know take the mini moog and they put it in outer space and they give us you know he gives us this synthesized bass line that you know just comes to sort of encapsulate that tune and then seven you know another seven years later we
2: all of a sudden have this cool funk tune that has no bass right so all of a sudden one of the defining attributes of this musical style is just gone. Yeah. <laughs> I keep I kept waiting for it. I was like no no there's got to be bass. Maybe if I get 3 minutes in. No bass. 4 minutes in no and then I'm oh the song is over there was no bass in that track. <laughs> it's 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 unprecedented. I it actually just made me realize, too, that Larry Graham, the bass player for Sly and the Family Stone, responsible for that famous bass riff that you just mentioned, I think was actually very good friends with Prince. They were. That's true. If I'm not mistaken, actually converted Prince to to be a Jehovah's Witness after years yes. of conversation. Yes, that is correct. In 2001, he uh, made the conversion <laughs> in 2001. OK, so you can corroborate that. Yes. Okay. Yes. (laughs) So okay, so no bass in this track and and so so historically uh, in, in it's in this 1984 moment you point out that's very bizarre and then what do you but why do you think Prince chose that for this track specifically? Uh, you know it's always sort of difficult to
4: speculate what uh, what Prince was thinking. he was you know so far ahead of uh, of all of us but you know so the, the there's this great dissertation that came out of UCLA in 2008. it was written, it's written by this musicologist Griffin Woodworth who does a really great analysis of this of this
3: tune. Musicology
4: And so he points out that there was a baseline, um, you know, uh, that Prince had a uh, baseline for it originally, and then stripped it away. And so he's making the claim that it's uh, that sort of the removal of the baseline really um, sort of highlights the two-measure drum groove, and really allows the listener to sort of focus on the the multiple layers that are going on in that in that drum section.
2: Uh, okay. So this drum groove kind of. Takes the place of the bass line, perhaps. It does become it, it does kind of become very melodic after you listen to it for a long time. Right. I mean for a while it's the you know the most prominent feature in the track.
3: Yard, an ocean of violets in bloom most strike.
2: Listening to, it, I wonder. I, 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 I'm tempted to argue that that Prince finds ways to substitute for that low uh, that low end range that is missing. Hmm. One of those places I feel like is in the vocal itself, which is very very low yeah yeah
4: I mean, you know he's got those uh, he splits his voice into into octaves um during during parts of the track, and you're you're absolutely right. he's got that low growling part of his vocal line. I would add you know absolutely uh, agree with that um that it's sort of filling in 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 those moments. um but I guess what I'd like to you know sort of counter that with is that uh you know bass lines have become very melodic and very sort of prominent in those moments with the with the vocal line while while you're absolutely right they're they're there. Um, they don't ever sort of supersede, you know, this this drum groove that's going on.
2: I, I accept your I accept your counterpoint. <laughs> okay, so something you just said that I also want to highlight in this song is this uh, what 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 you I think you described as the multi octave vocal range of Prince. Uh, we should mention that this is uh, one of the many songs on which. Prince plays every instrument. Right. And every vocal, I, I think. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So then when we're listening to the, the chorus of this song and we hear harmonies stretching from the the very low to the very high, those are all Prince. That's, yes, that's correct. That's all Prince. So that means that, I mean, I I, I was at the piano earlier. I think he sings from an A two octaves below middle C to an A two octaves above middle C. Is that, could that be possible? Um, I it's certainly possible. Um, you know, I will,
4: I will trust your, your transcription, uh, skills. But yeah, I mean, his vocal range is sort of ridiculous. A
2: four octave vocal range. I mean, that is <laughs> staggering. I can't, I mean, we think of, I think we think of him as a very, as having a very distinctive falsetto. Yes. Um, on, you know, maybe so, like famous songs like Kiss and so forth, but, on doves cry we hear the full spectrum of his voice it's like it's kind of astonishing yeah and you know he uses
4: his voice to really sort of fill out those those textures that are that are missing from you know the instrumentation that you would expect in in you know like a, a very funk oriented tune like the the bases we've talked about and you know like a, a horn section he doesn't have a horn section you know he's got the got the synthesizer lines sort of filling those in but yeah really using the that multi-tracked voice to to fill out the the textures at, at sort of key structural moments in the piece <laughs>
2: Good, so I think we're getting back to this idea of experimentation. He's working within uh, many of the boundaries of funk style, but in other ways pushing against them and and maybe opening whole new doors within the style. Yeah, absolutely. This brings me to uh, another kind of endlessly entertaining clip that you have unearthed uh, from the internet. This is not Prince's famous Super Bowl performance. <laughs> this
4: is the press conference um, before the Super Bowl. It's uh it's a great moment. Like you know, everyone talks about how great the Super Bowl performance is and no doubt it was a phenomenal performance. But, you know,
2: for for my money, like I just think that press conference is fantastic. I totally agree. So, yeah. Okay, so this is maybe where they're announcing that Prince is going to play and he plays a few songs. And he does this thing that you point out that um, I just watched uh, on repeat about 20 times. Um, Can you can you describe how this performance starts?
4: Sure. So, you know, Prince and the band walk out and he steps up to the microphone. I'm not sure if I'm going to get the quote exactly right. He says something along the lines of uh, contrary to rumor. uh, You know, I'd I'd like to take some questions now. And he looks around and there's, you know, there's some reticence and then uh, some reporter stands up and starts to pose the question, saying, Prince, how do you feel about, it? and then he just comes in with the first chord on, <laughs> on Johnny Be Good," with that, you know, that little smirk that he has after the after the band comes in. Thank you, John, for those kind words. Um, we hope we don't wreck your ears too much. Uh, contrary to rumor, um, I'd like to take a few questions right now. Prince, how do you feel about the
2: It is. I mean, it, it is. It is completely jaw dropping to me. And then, yeah, just the 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 playfulness and the and the kind of I don't know. It's a great moment. But then you're right. He plays a song you might not ex- expect Prince to play: "Johnny Be Good." by Chuck Berry. Right. Yeah. You know, Prince was um, didn't cover any tunes
4: until oh, um, it might be like the Emancipation Record in like 96 or 97. Like he was, you know, had written so much original material. And um, so when you get a chance to hear Prince um, play, you know, when when you get a chance
2: to hear him cover a tune, it's uh, it's quite the event, I think. I agree. And I think this tune in particular resonated with the other things you were talking about in your article, because it's a song that is in many ways regarded as the uh like a re- one of the real benchmarks of rock and roll music um and maybe i feel like almost prince is maybe reminding the audience that rock and roll is in fact black music is uh, a testament to the diversity of black musical practice that you talk about
4: yeah i think that's absolutely right you know and he was um he did that uh, again in his most you know the the last sort of studio record that he released the hit and run phase two there's a there's a track called black muse where he talks about you know um all of the sort of musical practices in the musical genres that. Um, you know, uh, form the core of of black music history. Where he talks about jazz, he talks about rhythm and blues, talks about rock and roll and soul. Um, so I think you're absolutely right that he's you know placing um, you know rock and roll firmly within um, the
2: trajectory of of black music history. Right. And then I wonder. This might be too much, but I wonder if even if if we accept that, maybe he is even reinforcing it later in that performance when he starts to do these jimmy hendrix style kind of (laughs) wah-wah riffs and he's saying yeah hendrix was rock too you know right yeah i think that's i think that's thought on There's, there's one other uh, beautiful clip that, that you discuss in your, in your piece that maybe brings this all home, um, which is of the, the great jazz bassist, Marcus Miller, performing live uh, this long composition in, in the middle of an extended bass solo. Completely unexpectedly, he starts to play When Doves Cry.
4: That's that's quite the moment. Um, it's so it's from a live uh, clip uh, from I believe the 2011 North Sea Jazz Festival, um, and I was fortunate enough to actually be at that at that performance. And so you know just to sort of it, it took a while for me to really wrap my head around that. You know here's this jazz bassist this like incredibly accomplished jazz bassist you know soloing beautifully on this on this tune Jean Pierre and then all of a sudden he quotes perhaps the most famous and popular tune that doesn't have a bass (laughs) in his bass solo it's like mind-blowing that that all these things are happening at the at the same time
2: and this very mechanical uh like highly synthesized song works surprisingly well as a jazz yeah, tune i find i
4: completely agree with with that assessment you know the the audience members if you can hear
2: it in the clip you know go nuts when they when they recognize what he's playing so, Matthew, from Fargo, North Dakota in the 80s to Rotterdam in the <laughs> 2000s, Prince has, seems to have been a, a real core part of your musical identity, even in ways that you might not expect. And uh, I really appreciate you uh, talking about that legacy with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure.
4: Thanks, uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks for the invitation.
0: This episode of Switched on Pop was produced by me, Charlie Harding. And moi, Nate Sloan. And our logo was designed
2: by Luke Harris. We were joined today by Matthew Valness, a scholar and writer based out of
0: Durham, North Carolina. We'll link to some more of his work on our website. And if you like our show and are really interested in the history of music, we suggest you check out Behind the liner notes. We were recently featured on their episode about the singing male Castrati, pulling from one of our episodes on One Direction. And so you definitely ought to go check it out at behindthelinernotes.com or wherever you find your podcasts.
2: Speaking of which, you can find more episodes of our show on our website, www.switchedonpop.com.
0: Com. You can also speak to us on Twitter at SwitchedOnPop. And if you're a longtime listener and you haven't reviewed the show on iTunes yet, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a note there so we know what you like and what you want more of.
2: Yeah. Or if you're short on time, just hit five stars and leave a smiley face. We'd really appreciate it. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, thanks, thanks for, for listening. It. This episode of Switched on Pop is brought to you by Wix.com. Wix.com has hundreds of designer-made templates to help you build a professional site for your business. Go to WIX.com to get started today. The result is stunning.
0: Listen to and follow Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath, then a two hour nap because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.